Is this mic turned on? Wax poetic. Hi, kids. I'm a dinosaur hunter BMX rider. Long division sure comes in handy. All the little girls dream of one day biting into a corn dog and smiling at the camera. If I ran the web, you could email dead people. Wax poetic. Just say no to family values. In the terrarium is herpes. Herpes is a hermit crab. And I don't give a moment's focus to who does or doesn't like the sound of my voice. This is Wax Poetic on Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. So what if I write a poem like a song? Good afternoon and welcome to Wax Poetic. I'm one of your co-hosts today, Pamela Bentley. And I'm your other co-host this afternoon, R.C. Weslowski. And our guest today is Jennifer Zilm. Hi, Jennifer. Hi. Certainly uh, glad to have you here on the show and uh, welcome. And we'd like you to start us off with one of your poems, please. Long Line Sonnet for Dr. Young. At the end of my benefits, my mouth holds a temporary crown. Arms along the naugahyde arms of the tilted back chair, smooth and thick like the skin of some endangered African animal. My iPod holds a slight, dense weight cold beneath my T-shirt against the swell of bare belly. One earphone is in. Elliot, the voice of the poet, St. Louis faking Queen's English over the buzzing insistence of the drill, latex fingers pulling my swollen, etherized gums. Those were the bones that were his eyes? The hygienist, middle-aged Mexican, comments on the plasma screen. The one hockey game I went to was Queen Elizabeth in her red dress, drop, dropping the, what do you call the rubber disc, onto the ice. Dr. Young 24 and carving, ignores her, notes beneath her breath that under amalgams there is almost always decay. Amidst a waft of shaved calcium, dental cement, the chair is raised. I am enthroned. Done. What was the last line? I am what? I am enthroned. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about that. Um, I love the dentist. I mean, I, lo- I like, I'm actually an excellent patient. I like, I like being, um, I'm, I'm, I, I actually think I could probably start a patient consulting business <laughs> where I could train people to enjoy doctors or dentists or anything, psychiatrists. And, and what makes you perfect for that job? Uh, I, I can go with things and I, I think I can model good feedback or right. something. Right. I don't know. So you feel enthroned and, and paid attention, like somebody's going to feed you grapes or something. Yeah. And also, I, I used to think I was nervous. I used, that used to be, I used to think I was neurotic. And then one time, uh, I, I used to refer a lot of people to my dentist because I used to grind my teeth a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so I was having a lot of work done and I would refer people to my dentist. And one person said, you know, Dr. Young says that you're the most relaxed patient she's ever had. And I'm like, oh. And it was like this amazing thing because it was like, oh, maybe I'm not this really st- nervous person. Maybe I'm actually the most relaxed patient in the world. Did you, you go ahead? Stop 
grinding your teeth? That's what I was going to ask. You said you used to. Um, <laughs> no, I, I pretend I, I, have, um, I have a series of mouth guards. I have a poem about my mouth guard, too. Did you bring it with you? The poem or the mouth guard? Both. <laughs> well, the thing about, I lost, I, I've chewed through several mouth guards, and uh-huh. I, lost, um, I lost one. And then I went back to go to the dentist, and um, Dr. Young was gone because you don't, oh. or I guess you're not expected to have the same sort of relationship with the dentist as you oh. would with, say, your doctor. And they're like, she just moved back to Calgary. And I'm like, but she rebuilt my whole mouth. How could she just. Move that would back? be, I'd feel traumatic about yeah. that. That's, exactly. I was, yeah. it was a little. I mean, I was you a little, get upset when your hairdresser moves, so. Right. If you're a person who goes to get your hair cut. I have a poem about hairdressers, too, but it's, it's, in a, it's not in this book. But I have. Um, I, I used to think that that was the most stressful thing in the world, like way worse than going to the dentist because you have to make small talk. Mm-hmm. Mm. And then they oh, judge yeah, you. Yeah, you can't when you're at the dentist, yeah. really. And you have to look, and you look in the mirror the whole time. I've never looked at myself in the mirror as long as I have to. And Well, you, it, I'm, I'm blind, so I usually wear contact lenses, but what I'll do is I'll just not wear glasses. And then this is a very good coping strategy. I just but, pretend I'm sleeping. But they're very judgmental. They will say, like, they'll ask you things like how you wear your part. And you're like, what are you talking about? Yes, exactly. (laughs) And you you start to think it's a very metaphorical question. I love the guy who cuts my hair. We have really great conversations. But I know that pressure is that way you're talking about. I just want to say that just in case James is ever listening. Um, I wanted to say, though, you've, you've mentioned the book a couple of times. So your book is called Waiting Room. Yes. So is it all about the dentist or what is it? Um, well, is that, it's, is that it's a reference about, to that kind of waiting room? Well, there's only there's only three poems that are in the opening section, which is about the dentist, and then there's a whole chunk which are sort of about academic committee rooms and oh, waiting, okay. and that sort of waiting. And then there's a whole bunch of poems about um, Vancouver, and then there's a whole bunch of poems about uh, doctors' appointments and buses, buses and doctors' appointments and waiting for things. Hmm. Those are my those, those are my recurring themes. Like right. they ca- can't get over them. It's but well, we spend a lot of time waiting during our daily lives, whether to talk with other people or go on and go to an appointment or waiting for the bus or waiting in line to get a buy this or that and that sort of thing. Well, and also this is we're actually never waiting because that's what my my one insight that I've ever had in my life is that the waiting room is the part of the therapy. That's the best part because once you realize that you're not waiting for anything, um, everything's okay. Because when I was writing this book, I came across a quote, and this is in um, about somebody who had a, I don't even remember what it was, but somebody was having a dream where they kept. Re- they were in a tunnel and they kept running back and forth to either end of the tunnel and there were dogs at the other end of the tunnel barking and she didn't know what to do and the person's like well just sit down in the tunnel and I'm like oh Uh, duh of course and then I realized my friend has two dogs named Pizza and Chippy who are pretty precious and I'm like well maybe the dogs are just Pizza and Chippy Mm -hmm. or hungry yeah or or adorable or Or they're happy to see you yeah it's like hey dogs let's sit down in the tunnel together yeah. Well, and it's, yeah, it's all perspective, right? So if you're waiting, 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 or if you're just sitting in a room and you have some time to be quiet and still and on your phone in some cases. But can you elaborate? Sorry, I cut you off there. But on what do you mean? We're not, we're not waiting. You mean just because we're always just doing something or even if we're sitting in a waiting room? Yes. And I used to uh, find waiting rooms really anxious. And I'm like, oh, no, those are the best times because you can use that anxiety. Uh. I'm starting to sound like maybe I'm sounding a bit like a hippie, but that's OK. Um, <laughs> I take I take the bus a lot because yeah. I don't drive. And I t- and um, I take really long bus trips. And there's no better time, I think, for writing 
than those times. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think that I wouldn't be the same without them. Hmm. Let's hear another poem from sure. you. Oh, yeah. no. Oh, I hadn't thought that far. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're listening to Jennifer Zilm today on Wax Poetic on Co-op Radio 100.5 FM CFRO. And you've got a lot of books on the floor, so that's pretty impressive because I think each one of them has at least uh, one of your poems published in it. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes, but I'm going through this stage where um, I'm worried. Th- I-, I didn't want to read any of these poems for a long time before the book came out because then I'm like, what if I get really tired of them? Right. Um, and you've gotten past that, or you've gotten no? But you have to. <laughs> one has to live in the world, apparently. Um, <laughs> but I didn't read them for a really long time, and so I'm just starting to again. Um, so this is kind of a, a, a visual poem, so I'm going to read it online because that makes sense. But um, <laughs> it's, I, I was working on a dissertation for many years, and um, I decided to have a big chunk of my book is about that process. And a part of it's also my thesis, which I erasured. But this is actually about footnotes, which are my favorite form. And... Um, <laughs> Half of the so what it how it works sort of is uh, the first line is has a foot each line has a footnote and then there will be um, I'll, I'll read the footnote and then I'll go back to the poem. Okay. So I wanted it to be two poems in one, even though I heard a comedian say that two two in one shampoo it's not possible because two cannot contain one. So oh. what about uh, peanut butter and jelly in a jar? It's twisted together. That's 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 possible. I'm never. I'm not that good with numbers. I'm not. I'm really not. Like, I'm I could. Not, s- I could see with shampoo. Absolutely, because yeah, you're. It's all there, one. and it's just a shampoo thing. and conditioner. Unless it's like a, f- a Sunday, and it's layered, and it kind of you know mixes like that the way. peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, oh, I'm, I'm stalling. Okay, I'll do this. It's called the Associate Professor Footnotes. He encourages you to allow the footnote to overtake the page. One, on your campus tour, he shakes your hand the way you think a man should always shake a woman's hand, firm yet gentle, a recognition of a mattered presence. He laughs when you say Jesus must clearly have been ginger. He writes your voice on the chalkboard in the main seminar room, the one that isn't in the basement, the one displayed to guests, to prospectives. You don't remember what you said, but perhaps... Something about the elusive Messiah, about methods of excavating a parable. You recall only his slender yet masculine hand tracing white letters on the smooth feckin' green. The associate professor manages to be simultaneously bald, a redhead, and sexy, too. Once he is talking about whether to use the third person, the royal we, or the I in scholarship, and he says subsequently as subsequently, and you immediately begin to compose a letter to the OED to amend their pronunciation guide. (laughs) Post-enlightenment, post-modern. Three. One of his research interests is identity formation. When they tear you apart for using the words mission and conversion in the New Testament section of the Canadian Society of Biblical Studies, he is at the back of the crowded lecture hall and says nothing but tells you later in an office in university hall that you are absolutely right. He dialogues interfaith in his spare time. Four. In that same aforementioned office, he says, you're interested in gender, aren't you? And you find yourself denying it, saying, no, not really. I'm not interested in anything. Not anything. The associate 
doctor digs through the bones of Galilean synagogues. Five. Later in the basement, he tells you lovely things about your review of Jewish archaeology, suggesting you should publish your, rev- your reading of foot washing in the Gospel of John. The do- his doctoral students always put men's names in their dissertations titles. Six. E.g., Jesus and the Galilean exorcist, Matthew the shepherd, Jesus restoration prophet, Luke the God-fearer, Paul the Christ believer, Mark in the unveiled <laughs> temple, the synoptic jo- Joseph and the fogged window. His Scandinavian children are all blonde. 7. Near Christmas, after your last seminar, you eat a humble meal of soup in his dense dining room adjacent to a jumbled book room with your future colleagues. You drink too much wine and argue after dinner with a burgeoning gospel scholar about how to pronounce the word trepidatious. They are Church of Sweden agnostics. They sing Christmas hymns to the last surviving Swedish saint. 8. For real. The saint's name is Lucy, like the bones of the first human, and she survived the Reformation. The children wear paper, leaf, laurel halos and sing to you in Swedish. His eyes on them glowing. These are his most beautiful footnotes, maybe. And his two fair daughters sing surely like girls raised by a man who knows how to properly shake a woman's hand. Wow. So... He, you you allowed him to you you went with the uh, encouraging the footnotes. Did the footnotes take over the page? This is where I'm going. Yeah, encouraged totally. To have them take over the. Page. I, I wanted oh. to have more footnote than than <laughs> than text. I, I love those books where, it's, um, especially I've noticed in like rabbinics, if you feel like there would be a t- um, in scholarship on rabbinics, there'll be a footnote, and then there's just a, a page of like refer like referrals to everything mm-hmm. else. It's kind of nice. Kind of, you kind of feel like it's cheating because um, footnotes, nobody knows whether to read them or not. Like if you read a whole book and you haven't read the footnotes, have you read the book? I think right, a lot of people right. would say yes. But I think you can hide a lot of stuff there as well. And that's one of the things I like to do. I kind of like end notes too because then you can read the end notes back to forth, back from start to finish as though they're another text, right? Yes. And, and you have to remember what it was commenting upon. Y- yes. And, and just make up stuff. Why do you love footnotes so much, though? Um, well, because I like how you can do two things on the right. page, and I like to be discursive. I like to like like go on tangents, and um, um, that's interesting. So I that do. you see them as tan- as a way of getting tangents in there, or tangents are just like I think they're so- like associational. Is that a word? Mm-hmm. Like there, there's like um, if you're poetry is about making associations, and I just read a really good book about Robert Frost which was about how we have all read that poem, Two Roads Diverged mm-hmm. into a Yellow Wood, completely wrong. And, um, but... Uh, oh, I read, th- I read an article on that. Anyway. Yes, from no, the same yeah, yeah. fellow. And it was very interesting because uh, Robert Frost said something about how everybody says poems are like music, but he thinks it's also like hockey or like nobody ever, like um, you score a goal. Like you have to keep associating and scoring, he right. says. And not that I've ever read a lot of Robert Frost, but I felt like... Huh. That made sense. Um, that poem made me think that, because uh, I haven't gone to university, it made me think scholarship is quite ritualistic in and of itself and might even be its own religion with all these things and going back and forth and the, the you know, the, the, the Swedish church of agnostics or whatever. Like it just, it was fascinating, but also so complex to me. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, that's a lot of stuff to to have to deal with if you're going to school. Well, I think also um, everything is we do is pretty ritualistic mm-hmm. and and religious in a way. 
you know, almost every, like everywhere I go, I'm like, oh, hey, this is a cult. I seem like you just wander into cults, right? Mm. Like poetry is a pretty big cult. Sure. And, and which is good. And there are splinter groups. Splinter groups, right. <laughs> and um, um, when in New Testament, there's a New Testament scholar who sp- speaks of a group that he's created called crypto-Christians, who were Christians who, um, in the early years of the Jesus movement, hid the fact that they secretly were following Jesus and were also Jews, so he calls them crypto-Christians. And I think that probably within the splinter groups of poetry, there's probably like crypto-lyricists <laughs> or, or crypto-spoken-word people, yeah, maybe? Yeah. I, think you're, I think you're right. But I'm, I, don't, I don't know as much about... Um, Splinter groups, but were that were they um, was Christianity already established, or were they following Jesus prior to being you know it's Christianity? So, well, the the, the scholar who said this was um, speaking about a hypothetical group of people he'd identified in the Gospel of John. So it would be before Christianity was really set down. So they were still because Jesus would have been just a Jew then, right? And yeah, have, like a little more whatever radical, Judaism I guess. was. Yeah, exactly. That time, it would have yeah. been like a superstar, Jesus superstar, or something. Well, I, I don't, I don't know, but I, I do love the movie <laughs> Jesus Christ Superstar. Maybe they had that back then, and that was the whole realm of his po- uh, popularity was because he was a musician and he had this musical, <laughs> and people were like, "Wow, I want to follow this guy." It was like their first rock star, and people were like, following like they couldn't follow him on Twitter, but they could follow him <laughs> in the desert. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I've actually often thought this, and since I actually don't believe in scholarship anymore, I think it, that's about as likely as anything else. Is, is that some of what you were trying to get at in that poem? Because the reason I ask this is that, so you're talking about the ritual of the scholarship, but it's also very human, right? It's it's looking at this guy like a human, the way he shake hand, shakes hands. I was almost expecting something kind of a, a creepy. creepy to happen, and it doesn't. It's just this kind of like, I really, there's like a love for him, right? Uh, or an admiration for him. Is that? Sure. Yeah. No, I love everybody too, though. No. I, um, yeah, I think so. I think so. But um, um, I've. I don't know why people think... I like it when people think things are going to be creepy and they're not. That's my favorite thing in the world. Well, well no. I mean, it's my favorite that, thing right now. But. <laughs> well, a hundred years ago, that wouldn't be creepy. But in the day and age here where we're so... We're, we're, we're embroiled in the, like, bringing to light the idea of rape culture and, like, you know, and all these things that are so important to talk about that now we start to expect that, right? We start to expect that. So it was kind right. of nice to just... Well, not nice, but it was... It was um, it was interesting that it didn't go there, right? It was just this kind of sweet portrait of this man who you obviously felt supported by as a scholar. Is that it, if he well, maybe I don't know if he really existed. Oh, well, okay. no, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I but you know, see him. So you did it like you did this. Uh, um, interesting. I was just. This is weird that you mentioned rape culture because I was talking to RC about how I want to write a book that's just all Surrey girl jokes. Like it's going to be based on each, but I was thinking it could be a novel or something because each Surrey girl joke has. I, I feel I grew up in Surrey. I feel like I have all these associations where I'm like, well, I could see so much. It's got out the of footnotes, this. footnotes, or just like you know, because the, the Surrey girl jokes are so bad. So you do and a Surrey so, girl joke, and then the footnote is the short story that tells the story of that Surrey girl. Or it could be epic poetry because I think Surrey girls weren't epic poetry. So I think it's it's going to be called. Um, and I I said it was going to be called punchlines. Right. And, right. Uh, wow. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I thought it'd be a really um, fun, 
thing, but then I, I wrote one and it got pretty dark. And I'm like, uh, oh, I don't want to do this. Uh, so what, I, a cerebral joke or your poem? Both. Both. But dark and light too. But um, yeah. You're listening to Jennifer Zilm, um, our guest today on Co op Radio on Wax Poetic. And Co op Radio is CFRO 100.5. FM. I think we need another poem. Yeah, I wouldn't mind another poem from the upcoming book and maybe talk about when the book is out and you know, if you're going to do a book launch and all that stuff too. Okay. Um, it's not as interesting as what we're talking about now. but Oh, it might be. It might be. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I love your, like, everything is a possibility. <laughs> maybe. Yes. I, I try to, I try, I try to, um, the only way I can ever read poems in public is by pretending the world is going to end. Yes, we talked about yeah. this. Yeah. See, why, why is that? Because it's, it's so, on some level, it's so nerve-wracking to me that I'm like, uh, oh, well, it doesn't matter. We're all going to die. And I actually had this idea that it, I'm like, because, you know, everybody's obsessed with trigger warnings now. Right. And I thought about how, you know, trigger the ultimate trigger warning, it's also a spoiler alert, is that we're all going to die. At and, the end of this poem. At the end of the reading. So or yeah. just in general, we're all going to die. So like, once yeah. you, how upset can you be by anything you read or see on the internet when you're like, oh, well, we're all going to die. And then somebody told me that that's actually a strategy that they use in cognitive behavioral therapy for people who have it's perspective, anxiety. right? Like, oh, we're all going to die. That's okay. And I always use, well, how bad can it get? Nobody died. Right. Well, right. That's a very. That's a very. You could get pretty bad without dying. No, but you know what I mean. It's like, what's the worst that could happen? Nobody will die. Like just to try and get you to. I do think something death, that death is a lot less uh, problematic than like being tortured or and Fair still enough. left alive. Yeah, I, I'd accept that. So anyway, yeah. dark. <laughs> dark. Suddenly, um, <laughs> have you ever noticed that Vancouver is like the darkest place in the world? Like, I had this. Um, I was just thinking today because when I left the Greater Vancouver and I moved to what I call Real Canada, um, I was like, they had this idea of what Vancouver was, and I'm like, oh right, because it's not a real place because everybody talks about it like it's this like wonderful Shangri-La, you know, the best place on earth, and Lotus and Land. it's like it's actually. We are the most unhappy people. But I think we're not unhappy. I think we're like post-apocalyptic unhappy. We've accepted the fact that we're going to die. Yeah, or just like, or we think we're not going to die. Like, I can't, there's something about Vancouver that's very, like, um, one minute, very, um, I feel like every single moment in Vancouver, if you're in the world, things could go very wonderful or very... Very, uh, very awful, like uh-huh. that. Yeah, yeah. I would but say that. I so. take the number seven bus yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. every day. <laughs> no more. <laughs> or just walk downtown at night, you know, and it's like it's dangerous. People run and punch people in the head. For uh, yeah, maybe not dangerous for you walking by, but you see all these dangerous things, right? Right. Even if it's not dangerous for you personally. Yeah, and I also I feel like the most dangerous place probably in the city is probably UBC. So. Hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so that's th- why I think everyone should write to ride the seven if they come to Vancouver. That's my number one away, tourist. Yeah. It goes the, through the entire city, sort of. I think that's a great way to see a city is ride public transit, not the tour buses, public transit. Just ride it to the end of this and then come back and then take a different one. That's how you really get to learn a city. That and go to the grocery stores. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Donald's so Market. Yeah, exactly. And different places in the grocery stores. Donald's Market makes me really anxious. Well, there's so, so many. Tense. It's so cramped yeah. all the time. It's, there's so many people. I try to go at times when it's not as when it's closed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you can't get in, but it's, that's even more. Who am I kidding? I don't do groceries. I just eat out. 
All right, you have a okay. poem here. <laughs> so, right. So my book is called Waiting Room. It's coming out next month. No, the month after that, April, because now we're still in February. And um, the first part, the first poem I read was from the first part, and the second part, the second poem I read was from the second part, and then this is from the third part of the book. And I like four, because there's four canonical gospels, as I was telling R.C. Okay. Cool. So um, this is called Riff on Canto Six or Brazen Erasure on the Sunday Banner's Market. Um, so it shifts halfway through and I was trying to um, I was reading uh, a translation of Dante's Purgatory when I read this so I've kind of used some of that language but I switch halfway through and just kind of uh, cut and paste okay I was in the crowd that day markets always make me nervous all the deferred problems, promises to buy. Remember the way merchants hemmed me in the old city. Hey, beautiful. Hey, pretty eyes. It doesn't cost anything to smile. Everywhere my face thrown back at me. The hunchback who stands on the corner has had her hair cut. Again, close crop, dirty seagull, drug debts. Sometimes it grows long and surprises me. So shiny. I like that little hunchback. She's cute. I hope she doesn't die. Like Selma died, like John died, like the other one died. Don't worry so much about it. You'll live longer and get a tax rebate. Before break, I was dealing with the other public. No, we don't have rooms to rent to you, public. This is housing. These are people living in a gerund. Let judgment suspend, be it strange and manifest. The tremble possesses lingering. We are all participles. We are all gerunds. The sweat in the garden, empire waste that saved sacred green space between the safe injection site and the gated rubble between the Regent Hotel and Brandy's Pub. Bible verse, Genesis, spray-painted on a plywood border. The Nephilim are on the earth in these days. How do you spell neighborhood? My autocorrect is fucking up. I need to get one of those new blackberries. How do you spell neighborhood? As in, I've got to get out of this neighborhood. Brazen erasure on the Sunday binners market. The hazard tried to catch me anon, pushes through, remembers away, in that crowd, that day, turning. Everywhere my face bought outstretched flesh. She, her, procure her, grow holy, speed three, condemn all these people. Fully clear to me this con, flash the payment, debt deep waters reject she, twixt, smiling and tired, veils the facts. Speedy reach, head upon eyes watching, I descent, myself absorbed sullen, the shade embraced others. O house, O bond mistress swift, the city's name, one wall devour wretched, thy seized coast read her. You snatched at her, this wild judgment, strange and mannerist fest, thou lingering, this garden of waste. Come see thy persecuted sores, wounded, come heart of thy city, widowed, come slain aloof, plan our eyes swarming. Be glad, arts are bane, whose planning so redesigned, a woman sick, softest turning. That was beautifully read. This is part, part three. That That's was part, part. There is a part three, or that was. That part was three? in my my part three of this section of the book. Right. So. So you did erasure on your own first draft, or that other poem. Oh, that's in the other sections. That's in my Academy of Fragments section. No, but that, what you just read, I'm wondering, is that um, the? It sounded like you read that first part, mm-hmm. 
with the hunchback and all that. And then the second part was the same poem, but you had done erasure to it. Is that or erasure right to or a not? different text? Well, I was reading um, Dorothy Sayers' translation of uh, um, Purgatory because, and uh, the one way I found it was really fun to read is to. It has a lot of footnotes. As you can, I was I was writing and I was reading it, and things were finding their way in. And then halfway through, I just started to like just do a pure erasure of that text okay. and to see how it goes. Yeah. So when you do uh, an erasure to a text, are you specific? Are you how do you choose which poems you're blanking out or which words you're blanking out? Um, well, that time it was instinctual. I sometimes I think it's a bit like um, um, like tarot reading or mm. bibliomancy or chiromancy. Uh-huh. I just learned that word yesterday, which is palm reading, and um, I think you just sort of uh, wing it. But sometimes it doesn't work. Like sometimes yeah. you get a bad hand, and then we just do reading. it again and try it a different way or do you just leave go with whatever you came up the first time yeah or you can burn it or whatever yeah or it's some, sometimes i don't think one never knows if the poem is working quote unquote mm. not that i believe in working or anything but <laughs> i thought know. that i thought that poem worked i the mm-hmm. first the part the first part put me right there yeah i like right where in that space where you know people that are on the street that you see every day and i mean i think that's what you were doing you're well, looking. Your face is making me. Con- uh, no, no, no. I, I just. I, I have. I have a. I, I sometimes I think I have a bit of um, uh, an overly expressive face that doesn't actually is probably responding to. Cues. Uh, I just was making sure that I wasn't on the wrong track. Oh no, no. I think what ha- I was very interested. This poem is. It's sad to read it now because there used to be a street market every Sunday yeah. on Abbott Street, and it was pretty amazing. And there used to just be more commerce on the hundred block of East Hastings, and it was pretty in its own way pretty vibrant and then there was this lot in between mm-hmm. um that was torn down and somebody it was in bright blue and somebody had written this really bizarre inscrutable bible verse right. spray painted on it for no reason and i was staring at it one day and someone said did you know that the stuff that builders put around um empty lots is called hoarding and i'm like no but thanks for changing my life and um <laughs> I, I thought it was pretty interesting and i, I kind of thought that this they should just kind of keep this like as a rubble park but of course it's vancouver so of course they didn't right mm. right wow okay so do you have a launch for this book that's coming out on april 4th 2015 that pe- or 16 that people can buy pre-order from book thug mm-hmm. book thug is your publisher is there a launch scheduled for it where you are going to be pretending that the world is ending so that you can read as mm. well as you just did um, yes, but I'm not sure when the Vancouver one is yet. Okay. Um, I'm going to be reading in Ontario or, um, on- Ontario. Um, sorry. You know, when people move to Ontario and they move back and they start calling it Ontario, somebody <laughs> called it that. And I'm like, every time I say Ontario, I want to say that. Even though I like Ontario, on- yeah. on- Ontario, I just think that's a really, really funny thing to say. And, um, so I'm reading there and then I'm going to come back. And read here. So probably at the end of April sometime we should listen for it. Watch for it. Okay. Thank you very much. Jennifer Zilm was our guest today. Um, I think that we are out of time. So go and check uh, events. Yeah, go and check events. There's stuff tonight. There's three things tomorrow night. There's talking stick to microphone on Friday night. There's Sunday Poetry New West. And there's the Slam on Monday night. Yeah, and the talking stick festival is going on like different locations uh, for the rest of the week, not just Friday. Um, So, yeah, go check out Talking Stick Festival on uh, the web.
And Timothy Shea will be our guest next um, week in advance of his uh, book launch on March 14th. His book will be coming out, I think, on the day that he's going to be here next week. So mm-hmm. um, I'm Pam Bentley. I'm R.C. Weslowski. Thanks to Jennifer Zilm for being our guest today. Yeah. Thank you. And No Apologies Necessary is coming up next. You've been listening to Wax Poetic on Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. So what? So what? So what?